Welcome to the National Gallery of Ireland podcast. Experiences from memory are central themes in Jack B. Yeats's work from the mid-1920s onwards. Through the prism of memory, banal scenes such as train journeys and fair days are transformed into sensual, rich-coloured spectacles. In this podcast, Dr. Brendan Rooney, head of the curatorial department at the National Gallery of Ireland, will speak to Ruth Byrne, Professor of Cognitive Science at Trinity College Dublin. Brendan and Ruth will discuss Yeats's work and how he beautifully captured the essence of memory. Ruth, thanks so much for joining us uh, to uh, give us the uh, uh, in some some of your professional and scientific insights into Yeats uh, as we celebrate his work in an exhibition here at the National Gallery. You are a professor of cognitive science, and I thought it might be a useful place to start to ask you to outline your particular area of expertise and research and tell us what uh, cognitive science encompasses. Thanks, Brendan, and thanks for inviting me to talk about Yeats. It's a great honour. My work is in cognitive science, so what I'm interested in are experimental and computational investigations of the human mind. So I'm particularly interested in the psychology of human reasoning. So when people make inferences and try to figure out what choices to make or what to do next, they appear to mentally simulate alternative possibilities. And what I'm interested in then is this relationship between how people reason and how they imagine alternatives. And this nexus between reasoning and imagination turns out to be core to people being able to think clearly in various different kinds of situations. Great. Now, the the um, the title of our exhibition is Jack B. Yates Painting and Memory. And as that title suggests, the exhibition focuses on the role of memory and the, I suppose, the active practice of remembering in the development of Jack B. Yeats's art. Um, but we were also keen to identify a theme with which visitors to the exhibition could identify and to investigate using Yeats's work as a point of reference, um, the subject of memory itself. And this was the point at which we reached out to you. And the result was a wonderful essay from your particular perspective as a scientist in the publication accompanying the exhibition. And what I'd like to do, if that's okay with you, is draw some points from that essay, which is full of fascinating observations, and ask you to expand on them a little, because what you really did was uh, approach the subject that we had kind of put before you with it from a totally different perspective to ours, and we found it extremely um, uh, fruitful uh, from our point of view. Um, so I thought I might start with just uh, one sequence or a few sentences at the beginning of your essay that sort of sets the whole text up in which you say the extraordinary creativity exhibited by groundbreaking artists lies at one end of a continuum and at the other end are the mundane sorts of creative thoughts you experience every day and I wondered are, um, are our daily activities yours mine and everyone else's more closely related to the remarkable achievements of writers artists and composers than we think. Yes, absolutely. I agree. I think even our ordinary, very mundane, everyday imagination 
has within it a little kernel of some of the magic that you see in these extraordinary acts of creative achievement from artists or composers or writers. And I think the, the crucial ingredients that are shared between our everyday imagination and, and that more exotic imagination is, so there's the ability to be able to represent a situation in our minds, to be able to recall or to simulate or to imagine things that happened or may have happened or may not have happened. And then to be able to manipulate that representation in our minds, to be able to simulate it from different perspectives or different interpretations or, or imbue it with different kinds of emotions. So we all have this ability to imagine and to create these kinds of representations. So we're all relying on these same kinds of cognitive processes and mechanisms to do that. What I think artists and others add into that mix is, is their passion to build up their expertise and their knowledge of their field and the devotion that they have to practicing, to fine tuning the skills that they have in their specific domain and of course the opportunity to do that and so they're able to elevate these processes to their their the an exceptional level fundamentally is it is, is it a muscle we can all train or is it are some people just predisposed towards tapping into uh that particular skill more than others it's it's certainly a set of cognitive processes that we all have access to and that we can all develop. And it does depend on having that opportunity to develop it. Also having the attraction, the, the, the desire to want to engage in that kind of activity. So in trying to figure out what talent is, psychologists have often um, come up with different ideas of, of why someone manages to be exceptional in a field. And it seems to be partly related to this enormous allure that that person feels for that domain that ensures that they will engage in that extraordinary amounts of practice and that they will build up these huge levels of domain expertise that great creative individuals have built up about their domain. That's really interesting because one of the uh, practices that Yates engaged in uh, obsessively or uh, repeatedly, particularly in the early decades of his career, was sketching. So in the gallery here, we have a, a collection of over 200 sketchbooks, and that is not by no means the, the, the entire collection in which he was uh, kind of uh, irresistibly drawn to doing it. But I imagine it was also a discipline. And um, you've mentioned in our conversations with you studies that have been done into the sketchbooks of, of scientists uh, who are working in laboratories. And uh, I wonder if, if you could expand on that a little on what, what came of those studies and if you think that it is applicable to artistic practice as well from what you've observed. Yeah, definitely. Psychologists have mined scientists' notebooks to, to try to see what the links are between their recordings of their observations and their daily activities and their subsequent creative discoveries. And so part of what the psychologists who've studied this have been interested in is whether those creative discoveries are occurring in kind of wild leaps and bounds or whether they're, they're really quite systematic and planned. And in particular, whether scientists are, are pursuing alternative ideas or whether they're just trying to confirm one particular idea at a time. So, for example, with Alexander Graham Bell and his invention of the telephone, he left behind a, a, a very rich archive of notes and his ongoing um, ideas, his aims and what hypotheses he was testing. And 
so interestingly, he was pursuing this idea for an electromagnetic device and was having some success with it. But he was also at the same time pursuing an idea of a liquid device and having some success with that. So he was simultaneously testing these two alternative hypotheses. And there, there is a great commonality there between what scientists are doing and making creative discoveries and the kinds of notebooks they keep and what artists are doing when they're engaged in exceptional paintings and the, the sketchbooks that they um, also keep. So psychologists have also tried to mine some of those artists' sketchbooks and, um, again, trying to address the kind of bigger question of is, is artistic creativity unpredictable, maybe even chaotic, or is it following... Um, do those eureka moments not come out of nowhere? They're coming out of a kind of planned sequence of ideas that are sometimes a quite a painstaking process of revision and tweaking and trial and error and so on. So in that one case, that is with Picasso's sketches for the painting Guernica, where what psychologists have done in trying to look at all the sketches he made was see, was he elaborating a single key idea throughout or was he generating different ideas and culling them, some of them, and in particular how that related to other paintings that he was engaged with at the time. So Yeats's sketchbooks, as, as you say, are, are very extensive and it's a great rich repository there in the, the National Archive and I think it's fascinating that he sketched so much as a, a young boy and as a young man, almost like a daily pictorial diary, which is really interesting. And then obviously he when he was working as a in newspapers, as a, an illustrator for sports, he was able to really fine tune those skills of sketching so that he was able to capture the immediacy and the emotion of sports events. But as you said to me, when we were looking around the gallery, the exhibition together, his sketches aren't really preparatory in the same way that Picasso's were, for example. So instead, you do get the impression that his sketchbooks turned out to be, if you like, a memory repository for him in his subsequent paintings. Exactly. That's how we've always read them. I suppose there's the danger when you when you see the net result, if you like the eureka moment for artists in, or in the case, in the Yates's case is the painting itself. And you tend to kind of reverse engineer it. So you see the sketches as being a necessary part of a process that, that culminates in the painting. And of course, that's not necessarily the way he saw it at all. And one of the things that becomes so clear when you look at his work across his long life, and, and we have talked with you about this as well, is his inclination to return to particular subjects as if he's trying to um, uh, really get under the skin of those subjects and relearn them or re-experience re them because sometimes he was returning to you know, characters in Ross's Point or the Sligo landscape or images of horses uh, decades after he'd first addressed them and is that inclination to return to subjects uh, indicative of a, of, of a very human inclination to seek answers to unresolved issues or to re-examine? Do we all do that and we're not even aware of it? Well, I think it's very interesting, particularly from, from the point of view of the creative process, that it's it's not uncommon for either scientists or artists or, or anybody engaged in a creative activity to return to the same idea again and again. So as you say, in Yeats's sketches, we see things like, say, for example, all the men who worked in Sligo at the Keys 
um, maybe related to his grandfather's shipping company, say. But in there, there's this recurring image of the pilot who guided the ships into Sligo port. And, and it's a very striking image. It appears again and again in his paintings, this solitary figure with the peaked cap and a beard and often on, on his own looking out to sea. And that return to, to a subject, I think, illustrates very well this idea that creative insight isn't necessarily a single flash, that it's a, a probing, a turning of an idea over and over and then perhaps leaving it aside for a while for it to incubate and for for you not to think about it and then revisiting it and restructuring your interpretation of it and so I think it's very intriguing to to try to track the changes in the representation of some of those characters like the pilot over the years so it he certainly conveys a kind of solitary reflection through him, but in in later paintings, it's he's very explicitly associated with, say, loss in paintings with evocative titles like "We Shall Not Meet Again." And so clearly, what it, it would seem that what he's trying to do is extract some core essence from those memories to distill what that memory signifies to him at different times in his life and certainly that's something that I think we all do we all revisit certain memories and try to extract their significance for us at this current moment as we have more experiences and more explanations and we reinterpret past memories yeah and it seems it seems from our conversations with you that it's very clear that um, all sorts of things interfere with our memories as time passes so there's life experience but there's also the uh, reinterpretation that takes place as you grow older and you, you, you to reread so the event or the memory whether it's ross's point or london or new york or whatever the whatever experience it was it changes over time just as uh and and it, it gets more complicated if you like and we were really fascinated by our observations about the fallibility of memory and i'm paraphrasing now and you'll have to forgive me but i think for uh, distilling it down it it can be the fallibility can basically be broken into three there's forgetting parts of an event which so you end up remembering the gist and relinquishing much of the detail we all do that fundamentally misremembering things and then I suppose, repeating that error over time and then changing, as, as I mentioned just a second ago, changing your interpretation of a remembered episode. And one thing that you, you'll often find uh, scholars do when they address art or literature is, is they, they seek authenticity and accuracy in records. And um, Yeats drew sometimes on experience in the moment, but, but more often than not, it was retrospectively. And, are we mistaken in trying to find accuracy in memory at all? It's a great question, but I, d I really don't think we are. I think that the important distinction is between truth in capturing the gist of something rather than accuracy in the literal detail of something. And I think you're, you're completely right that memory is hugely fallible on several different fronts. So, so we gather all the repeated episodes that we experience of something into some kind of memory schema, some knowledge structure that helps us. It, it, it's a great cognitive economy that we're able to organize information as it comes into us in these schema. But it does mean that we forget the details of unique events unless they were exceptional. 
But the important thing is that our memory, it isn't a passive record of events as they occurred. It's a hugely reconstructive process. And so we're relying on these memory schemas to help us to fill in the blanks, to, to in, encapsulate our expectations of, of what happened. And as you said, it, they also, memories change because our interpretations change, because we've reminisced with others, for example, or because we've got more explanations and experiences to try to understand the past over time. So it, it, even though we end up forgetting a lot and perhaps misremembering things and inserting things that are more related to our expectations than to our experiences. Nonetheless, one of the extraordinary achievements of human memory is that we do preserve the gist of the memory. And so even though we've forgotten the mundane aspects of it, the, the meaning of that memory to us seems to be retained very well. And I think it's really marvellous that Yeats seemed to have a very robust and intuitive grasp of that. So, so he was deliberately painting from memory. And in one of the few assertions that we have from him about what he was doing, he does say that, that an artist painting from memory can't be trying to make an accurate model, that instead... What an artist is trying to do in his view in painting from memory is communicate the feeling, what the memory felt like to you, what the scene in your memory of it, what its emotion is. And I think he does that extremely well. Yeah, absolutely. And you quote that in, in, your, in your essay as well. And for an artist who didn't, who preferred not to talk about his work and didn't talk about it very much, he's remarkably uh, um, uh, erudite when he does. It's, it's, it's a wonderful quote. Um, and of course, exactly what you have drawn out is is uh, manifest in his work as well, because his work, as time passed, the actual technique and the color range become much more uh, suggestive of feeling than they are of fact, and which is something that repeats itself throughout his work. And so that by the end, when things are becoming quite existential and abstracted, certainly his thought was his palette is quite dark, quite brooding, quite uh, um, intense. But in, in earlier decades, uh, when perhaps his, his heart was lighter, it is, it's more vigorous and more intense and more vibrant. So exactly what you're saying about his, his um, self-awareness, I suppose, of, of understanding um, where memory sat in his process uh, was very clear in the work that he was producing. Um, and I think that comes across very strongly through the exhibition. But of course, as as we've said many times, as we've been talking about the exhibition, this is 84 paintings of a body of work of 1200. So we're hoping that it's representative and that what we say is true of these or is is uh, might it might be, uh, you know, uh, credible in, in observing about these is true of his corpus of work as a whole. And we're, we've always been conscious of the the personal and intimate nature of the subjects that he addressed but you were one of the first people to, to to kind of delve a little deeper into the nature of those memories and say to us oh there are absences here though um and there are absences that perhaps are not so usual so when people tend to reminisce about their childhood they reminisce about uh, domestic activity or childhood friends or um it, you know, uh, interactions with individuals that were perhaps one-to-one -one or in small groups, they are curiously absent from those memories of his, of his youth. And um, 
but at the same time, he also liked to place himself in crowds. And as someone who became uh, quite private, more than reclusive, I think it's fair to say, in his later years, he did enjoy the, the energy of crowds. And we'd also wondered about the notion of public memory, because it did seem to us that he was uh, sensitive to that idea of, uh, of events and episodes that had a, a, a communal resonance, if you like. Uh, but if what we've been talking about so far is true about the fallibility and the personal nature of memory and all these factors that kind of interfere with it, can you talk about public memory credibly at all? Does it exist? Does public memory exist? It's a very good question. And I think we're all drawn to share our memories with each other and we reminisce and we narrativize not just our own personal life histories, but also the histories of our groups and our communities. And we we keep memory repositories of photographs or letters or writings or paintings. And and I guess an interesting question is the extent to which that public memory is also reconstructive in the same way that personal memory is. So, so that public memory also isn't just a passive record. It's, it's a reconstruction and it, it may well exhibit the same sorts of frailties that we've been talking about as, as ordinary everyday personal memory displays, in particular, the shift in interpretation of the significance of particular events. So explanations over time, interrogation from different perspectives, all of those apply to public memory just as as much as they do to private memory. But I do think it's fascinating, going back to what you said earlier about um, what what doesn't appear in Yeats's paintings. So he, he, he did say that every painting of his had some thought of Sligo in it and Sligo was certainly where he grew up where he spent his childhood and so that fits in that often our memories over our autobiographical lifespan we do tend to focus a lot on memories from the ages maybe of about 10 to 15 to about 20 to 25 or 30 that's when we kind of a lot of new and distinctive things happen to us so it's not surprising that we recall a lot often memories from that time have a big impact on our beliefs and decisions that shaped our lives. But in, in, in one of his comments about remembering and, and what he was trying to do in his paintings, he said that an artist wanted to hold again a moment and to pass that moment on to others. And so it is intriguing when you look at his paintings to wonder what moment was he holding on to there and what moment is he trying to pass on to us? And as you say, very few of them are these close personal memories. And his sketchbooks, in contrast, have great domestic scenes in them. So you'll see his dog, Hooligan, who's the spitting image of a dog I had when I was a kid. And you'll see his wife and you'll see his kitchen table. You know, you'll see all kinds of picnics with friends and everything like that. But in his oil paintings, none of them seem to make it into that. And instead, what you do see are public events. You see circuses and boxing rings and races. And you also see ordinary people in going about their everyday lives in open communal shared spaces. So, so they're the moments that he's passing on to us. They're the ones that he wanted to capture, hold for a moment and for us to, to, to see as well. And I guess 
I mean, for me, some of his most iconic paintings are the ones of these wanderers in the open countryside. And you see these pairs of little ragged kind of Beckett-like characters, travellers stretched out in fields under these vast skies. And you can't help but but wonder what is that moment? What is he trying to pass on to us there and hold that moment forever? And in his context, you know, he he's from a generation where it must have seemed like the world was just constantly at war. You know, he he lived through World War One, through the Irish War of Independence, the Civil War here, and then also World War Two. And there must have been just like shocking uncertainties in in the world then for for him. And we've all just lived through a year and a half where it seemed like the entire world has been turned upside down. And when you look at some of those paintings and you see these solitary travellers in these immense swirling landscapes, you can't help but but feel that he has really captured something of the, the huge turbulent uncertainty of the world and the tiny little alone individual in it. And I think that's it's applies to our time, that moment that he's passed on to us as much as it must have applied to his time. Absolutely. And it's it, it's it's so interesting to, to hear you put it so well, Ruth, because what we do know about him is what was how uh, engaged he was with with feeling, um, not in a theatrical way, in a very personal way. But um, if you are sensitive to uh, the way you're feeling, but also to you know, a prevailing atmosphere, those events that you're talking about must impact on you hugely. And, you know, we we came to to think that, you know, Yeats uh, engaged in a process of trying to place himself in the world. And if that world is changing beneath your feet all the time, and it does anyway, as you get older, I mean, one of the one of the fascinating things about him, uh, from a biographical point of view and, and the point of view of, of, of the experience of an individual is he lived such a long life. Often it's the artists who live uh, much shorter lives who are easier to, <laughs> to study and write about. Uh, but uh, in, in his case, you know, you could see his, his, uh, his mood and focus shift over time. Um, and of course, that was, you know, both personal and in his, in, in his immediate circle, if you like, his controllable world. But then there was outside of that, a world that was uh, changing radically in a very uncontrollable way, um, but it, I, I, I might bring you back to the, the, that uh, the point you made about the period in in people's lives that tends to uh, exercise a particular influence over, I suppose, their their self image uh, retrospectively, and well, I think what you've called a reminiscence bump it, it to us in the past, which is that period, the formative period. Is there any sense in in thinking that perhaps people think their real self abides in their youthful self and that everything after that is just complicated and <laughs> you know and 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 uh, mediated and uh and compromised well it, it's it's certainly true from the point of view of the creative process again starting with that that the past is a very rich seam and we all engage in this kind of mental time travel where we're able to catapult ourselves back into a past situation and not just think about what happened but imagine how things could have happen differently for example and we're able to project ourselves into the future and to imagine 
hypothetical possibilities there. And I think it it's interesting in Yeats's paintings, particularly his later ones, for example, that children start to appear. And we know he didn't have children. And there's various interpretations of who these children might be or what they might symbolize. But it, it it's as you've been saying, that there are these discernible shifts in what Yeats was focusing on throughout his um, different periods of, of painting. And in the, the early years of his oil paintings, he was very clear that he was painting from memory. And he said uh, things like that, all the people in my paintings are people I have seen. Whereas then later, as he got older, he there's, there's this shift to painting from imagination instead. And about one of his later paintings, he said, they're just people who walked into my imagination. So that transition from focusing on an actual memory to focusing on some imagined situation is very important in his work, I think. And it does encapsulate something about how we continue to derive some sense of who we are ourselves and what our lives have been about by mining our memories and and almost marrying them with this imagination of how things could have turned out differently yeah it's interesting because the uh the your inclination certainly looking at the at the later paintings that you're talking about is to see them as entirely autobiographical so you see a, a lone figure and you think that must be uh, uh, you know, uh, his alter ego or, or a representation of him. But then again, as you say, you have, a, he'll, you have these children and often side by sides. And I find myself suddenly doing the same thing of kind of imagining myself at different st- points in life. And of course, he was doing it from the distance of his 70s. And uh, it's simply not clear cut. He was, uh, th- there was something um, very reflective and universal and democratic about the way he approached what he was doing. Um, and uh, he seems never to engage in kind of mawkish nostalgia. And I was interested in, interested to ask you where you think the demarcation lines lie between memory and nostalgia. And are they one and the same or is one version of the other or are they fundamentally different? Well, it's, it's one of the great achievements I think of the human mind is that we're able to have this tremendous interaction between cognition and emotion and so the cognitive processes that underlie our ability to remember and to recall events to recollect different experiences or episodes somehow also managed to create emotions like nostalgia or wistfulness or regret and we really seem to have these pivotal memories that reel us back in over the years and not just to reminisce about the situation as it occurred but we seem to be irresistibly drawn to replay certain events to think what if or if only and to create these alternatives to the reality of what actually happened where we're imagining either a better outcome in our minds or we're imagining how things could have turned out worse or we're exploring different consequences of just what would have happened at this specific juncture and it's almost like our imaginations our everyday imaginations when we're thinking back over our past and reminiscing seem to get snagged on what psychologists have called fault lines in our memory or our our imagination. And these are often things that we fail to do or opportunities that we lost or not being able to spend enough time with someone that you loved or not keeping up something that you really enjoyed, a sport or a hobby or whatever. And so those kinds of 
if only thoughts seem to give rise to these quite complex emotions like regret or like nostalgia, where there's a comparison between how the situation turned out, your memory of what actually happened and how it could have turned out differently. And it's from that comparison that the emotion emerges. And I think one of the things that Yeats achieves very well is this natural marriage, not just between memory and imagination, but between memory, imagination and emotion. And he really manages to to convey the emotion of those kinds of situations. It's so true, isn't it? And 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 we really enjoyed walking around the exhibition, Donal and I, um, with you the, uh, uh, some days ago, uh, and looking particularly at the last room, which really is uh, focuses on the final years of his life when he's becoming particularly uh, uh, reflective. And it's it's a, it's a, a curious combination of of if you like desolation and and resignation, but also uh, um, you know triumph and uh, and the triumph of the spirit. And in a, in a really clear way, he does what you're what you're talking about uh, in in reimagining uh, alternatives in in his paintings. There's one in particular called "Leaving the Far Point," at which he places himself and his beloved wife Cotty with his you know his uncle who had died many decades before. But it's 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 wonderful to see him use a painting, a, a work of art as an opportunity to reunite in a really powerful way. And when in the exhibition, we've placed it immediately beside a painting in which Yeats does tell us that the lone figure is him. It's one of the few that he uh, kind of admitted was entirely autobiographical of him sitting on a park bench in the dark. And these are side by side, very different reflections on loss and on death. And then on the other side of the room, there's this wonderful painting called Sleep Sound, of these two figures embedded in the landscape, in which again, he seems to take the opportunity to imagine an alternative where he and, well, maybe it's not him, but it, it could well be him and Cotty reunited in the landscape in natural uh, harmonious surroundings it's a really powerful picture um so i, th I think you know there's a, there's a very physical manifestation to what you're talking about uh, in yates's work of reimagining or imagining mm -hmm. alternative outcomes or alternative uh existences or or, or or estates i suppose um one of the things one of the other things that we've talked about with you at some length is is the the remarkable proportionality of Yeats's work. He produced over half of his massive output of oil paintings in the last 15 years of his life. And um, obviously, it's a challenge to all those people who think that you become less creative as you get older. And I wondered, from your point of view, what might that tell, tell us about creativity and ageing? Well, certainly there is um, evidence that, that, you know, people, it's not the case that you lose those abilities. And, and he was so prolific. And it is uh, quite extraordinary to see so many paintings being produced by him that it's it, it's almost like they became like the diaries that he kept as a young boy. He was seems to have been producing it at certain decades of his certain years in, in the later decades of his life. He was producing perhaps a painting a week. And, and these were marvellous paintings that are, are viewed as his best paintings. So um, there's there's certainly um, lots of evidence that in different fields, in different domains, both in science and in uh, the arts, that um, people do continue to, to peak at different times. And I think he's a, a really great example of that. Yeah, and I, I, I know that, you know, the, the romantic poets, for instance, have been written about a lot, you know, uh, particularly at a time when um, 
communities were were absolutely destroyed by consumption and uh, you know and the and the mortality rate was was so high so you have i think keats wrote those lines if my if my pen uh, uh if i should die before my pen has gleamed my teeming brain this idea of of everything being accelerated because you know that the end is in sight right. and i have always got the impression that, that wasn't the case with the eights it was a general um just outpouring of energy of creative energy i don't think he was racing against time i think it was just a genuine reflection on on a a lifetime of experience and it just it was irresistible and and just uh was it was just uh born of an, inst an instinctive creativity that you see played out in all sorts of different ways and with incredible vigor for someone who was uh really quite elderly by the end he painted right up into his uh, into his 80s it's it's truly extraordinary it really is and i think that um he he's certainly you know he is sharing those particular moments with us right up to the very end so that there are um i guess the, you know the power of some of those paintings i think is that he you know if you look at say one of his paintings of a child playing on their own um beside a quayside what he seems to be doing is engaging you in in share he's sharing a memory that he has or an imagine imagined situation that he has and it resonates or it, it makes you think about similar memories that you have or analogous memories that you have and then he's conveying a particular emotion about that memory and and you're remembering or thinking about your emotions about that memory and some of the beauty I think of some of his paintings particularly the later ones is this sense that you you develop a shared understanding of something very important and it's tremendous that he can convey that in paint yeah it's, it's so true and we we tried to um use the the exhibition as an opportunity to, to test those ideas those things that we're inclined to believe about him and it's wonderful to be able to put on a, a large display of works to say we thought this about him we thought that he had this universal sensitivity and is it true and it it, it absolutely is it seems to be a, a wonderful combination of the intimate and personal but also the universal which is one of with great strengths but there was a, a lovely phrase that you used in your essay you talked about the tyranny of the specific and how he managed to avoid that and it, despite the fact that he was returning to these themes over and over again uh and were there particular motifs that you observed not just in the exhibition but in the other work that you'd done uh, it, while you were writing for us that you found particularly revealing in well certainly psychologists who study how people create new instances of any category have used this term of the tyranny of the specific and the idea is that that if you're trying to whether it's design a new chair or innovate in some new technology if you are thinking about concrete examples of say existing chairs that limits your imagination whereas if you're able to think in a more abstract or general way about it about say the function of a chair it turns out that that seems to help people unchain their imaginations and they can create more original instances as a result and certainly Yeats seems to have done that in some of the the paintings that he did and the best example to me is um the Yeats horse which is such a distinctive uh 
animal and you and I both share love of horses and your great horse exhibition and the the, the book that you created on on uh, all the paintings of horses is marvelous and the Yates horse is recognizable and also really original so he seems to have achieved that by not focusing on the kind of concrete specifics if you like but on their higher function so you get in his paintings of horses some in this exhibition and some in the the national gallery's collection and elsewhere you 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 get this um energy and movement of horses but you also he he is so good at conveying the individuality of particular horses and he captures horses who are afraid or who are exhibiting affection or curiosity and they're all really quite unique and clearly they symbolize something very special to Yeats so he would have growing up in Sligo and living in the countryside in England he would have encountered lots of different animals cows and sheep and pigs and so on but it's really only horses that make it into his paintings and so it's almost as if they're conveying something quite important like freedom or enthusiasm or even kindness and it seems to me that that they really, more than anything else in his paintings, convey some of what he, in one interview, the only interview that I've heard with him um, live, you know, verbal interview, where he said um, that, that the only art was the art of living. And I think that's really captured in some of these very vibrant horses where he has created them um, in you. You, could, you couldn't mistake a Yeats horse, I think. That's totally true. We do have one painting of cows in the collection. <laughs> yeah, we, you'll have to enjoy that at another time. <laughs> but they, they, they don't really compare with his horses. Um, just to return, uh, before we finish up to, to memory specifically, another one of the observations you made, which we thought was really fascinating, was uh, sort of related to the fact that his paintings particularly the later works we've talked about, appear to reflect not just a remembered or imagined event, but as you say, how it is remembered, how it is imagined faintly and tenuously. So technically the paintings seem to resemble memories. They're almost like a, a, a physical manifestation of memories. And we thought that was very interesting. And are there ways, I mean, basically, do we, do we remember in pictures? That's a, a great question. I think the 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 painting you were just referring to there a while ago, the leaving the the far point, the one of of two men and a, a woman walking towards us, which I know, as you said, it it, it may be his wife and himself and uh, an uncle. It may be an imagined event rather than um, a memory. But what's so striking about paintings like that is the the individuals in it are are almost indistinct. They're they're quite transparent, and it looks like they're carved out of their countryside you can see the countryside through them so there's this also this kind of transience to them that's very poignant and it it does seem to capture not just that this is a memory that he has but but also he's capturing how faint that memory might be how fragile it might be and there's been lots of research psychologists have carried out on on whether we think in images and what the role of imagery might be and and that debate continues to rage, but there's no doubt that our images are not like perceptions. They're not any way as detailed or as vivid or as rich as those, even the ones that feel vivid to us. But I think he was 
capturing something quite sad about memory that that we can have these very important memories and yet and yet we can barely see for example the face of a loved one in our minds and I think he captures that beautifully in the painting and I have to say that that painting in particular is one of my most favorite among among many favorites of Yeats's paintings and it was a real pleasure to see it in person because you you just don't see you you don't get it as much in the reproductions of it on the page I think it's when you're standing in front of the painting itself you you um, you just can't beat being able to see the paint on the pay, on the, the, the canvas and, and where there is no paint, as Donald was was pointing out when we were going around the exhibition. It is quite remarkable um, the, the way he uses various techniques, I think, to be able to convey that fragility of memory to us. Absolutely. And it's interesting, isn't it, that those those figures almost become more spectral as he gets older, because in the in the early years, in the 20s, they're much more robust. And I wonder, is it because they're closer to time? Maybe not. I mean, it's all tied up with experience and technique and 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 uh, and, and perception and your artistic goals as well. So it's a, it's a, a complicated business, but really fascinating. And he seems to be so engaged with the process of exploring memories he's so engaged it's a very sophisticated conversation he's having with himself over a long period of time um ruth thank you so much for sharing your thoughts with me and for collaborating with us on and enriching the yates project um as i said at the beginning you you have written beautifully about the yates's works and actually it's a master class in how to write about art so i would recommend your essay to anybody who's interested in uh learning more about the uh, cognitive process of memory, but also in understanding a little bit more about the way that Yates approached his subject. So thank you so much. I really appreciate it hugely. And uh, as I say, I recommend that everybody reads your essay in the book accompanying the exhibition. Thank you very much, Brendan. And it's a wonderful exhibition. And thank you for inviting me to collaborate on it. It's been a real joy.